How about now? Such good things. Wow. Can you hear me now? <laughs> okay. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, there was a king. His majesty had the biggest kingdom in the whole world, the most powerful army on earth, and a queen who was the prettiest among all the women in the royal court. He would sit on his golden throne, give orders, preside over fabulous banquets, go hunting in the black forest, and do all things he simply wanted to do. This kingdom had many subjects. All the subjects lived within the walls of the kingdom and the king. You ever heard a story like that? One of those once upon time stories about a king and a great kingdom? Well, today we're going to be talking about a king and a kingdom. And maybe it wasn't in a book. Maybe you watched a movie about a king or a kingdom. Uh, you know, there are some kings that are good, and, and you read about them, and their subjects in their kingdom never want for anything, and, and they're well taken care of. And then you read about kings in other stories that are not so good. Uh, they don't care for the people. In fact, they step on their subjects, and they use them for their own good. And uh, most of the time, these kingdoms are made up of a, mi a mix of subjects. You know, poor ones who seem to barely be able to have enough to, to provide for their own family, yet they are supporting the king with their taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, and then there are those subjects who are close to the king, who the, the king takes good care of. And, and then I think there are other types of kingdoms. I, I think there are types of kingdoms uh, where, well, I think of my own life. I have my own type of kingdom. You know, I have my own family. I have my own interests. I have my own organizations where I lead or I become king of. A place where someone is in charge or they've put themselves in charge. How many times do you wake up one day and think, man, my kingdom is a mess. But I'm in charge. I'm leading this thing. I'm doing whatever I want. But things are kind of hard. You know, I think that's my life sometimes. It's, it's my kingdom. I mean, where I say what goes. I like that. I like to be in control. I like to make those kinds of decisions. And in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, Paul explains a bit about this kingdom. How we are brought together under Christ, our King. And, and first, how we're reconciled to God. And, and second, um, the, uh, how we are reconciled to one another. I'm going to briefly touch on both of those today. But to understand how we are reconciled to God, we first need to understand why. Why do we even need to be reconciled with God? So turn with me, if you would, or if you haven't already, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and let's give the first half of the chapter a read. Man, you know, this is really hard in the, through the course of a week to try and figure out what not to say on a Sunday morning when it comes to the book of Ephesians. I mean, we're, I mean I'm looking at this whole chapter going, I really want to cover this really well, but in the series, today is, is it for chapter 2, and so I'm going to do my best. But let's read the first, uh, let me read the first 10 verses there as you follow along. As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, as we look at the world and we watch the news, it's easy to see that there are a lot of people in our world who are dead in their transgressions and dead in their sin. I mean, what kind of evil can happen next, to be honest with you? I'm, I'm so, I didn't think I could ever be surprised watching the nightly news as to what the next person could do, but I am constantly surprised at the decisions that people make. You know, Paul says this, and it's point number one in your notes, that we are trapped in our own kingdom. We are trapped in that kingdom. Um, uh, And we're not only trapped in that kingdom, but Paul says that we are essentially dead men and women walking. We're dead. There's no life in us. Uh, And this is, he says, our natural state. This is what we know. Before Christ, we don't know any other way. The the actions that we take, the decisions that we make, the things that we follow, and and Paul's going to describe that in a second, are just what we do. And instead of comparing ourselves to a holy God, we compare ourselves to each other. I mean, how many of us haven't gone through the course of a week and thought to ourselves, well, you know, it was kind of a rough week. I made some bad decisions, but I didn't make as bad of decisions as that guy did. You know, instead of comparing ourselves to a holy God, we compare ourselves to one another. Anyone in this room, uh, I'm not asking for a raise of hands, embezzle a million dollars? Anybody in this room robbed a bank lately? Killed someone? Killed your wife and children? Lead a country to murder thousands or millions of people? Nope. I mean, we, we sometimes think, you know, I'm not half bad compared to those people. Maybe, maybe there's someone who would happen to be listening to the message today who has done one of those things. What you need to know is that compared to even someone else, a person that has done one of those things that I just listed, there's somebody that's done worse. But you also need to know that there's, there's forgiveness and grace, and we're going to see that in just a second, for anyone. For anyone. But we all tend to think of ourselves with inflated views, don't we? I mean, you know a person like that, right? Well, they really think a lot of themselves. Well, they think pretty highly of themselves. And we, 
And we all like to point to other people, but there are times when if we were really looking at our own life in our interactions with other people, we kind of think we're pretty good too compared to, to some. Keller says that we're all like grimy miners down in a pit comparing ourselves with each other and imagining ourselves relatively clean. <laughs> well, it was a hard day in the coal mine, but I look pretty clean today. But Paul says this just isn't so. We are dead, and there's no way a dead corpse can bring life back to itself. Can't be done. It's impossible. We can do some good things, and we can look good on the outside, and we can compare ourselves and be, you know, morally or make better choices than the next guy. But ultimately, Paul says it's impossible. That even the good things that we do will always have some sort of selfish underpinning. We will, we will be out for something for, for ourselves. Uh, Augustine said it this way, My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. That's what Paul is saying. That's where, that's where we are. Some of us are. That's where we were, he says in the past tense. He says, look, look there again in verse 2 and 3, in which, he says, you used to live. He's, remember, in the book of Ephesians, he's writing to Christians. Okay, uh, In the past tense, you used to live this way when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So first of all, we need to come to an honest understanding of who we either are today or who we were. By nature, Paul says, we were this way. Living in the kingdom of self and sin, we did three things. The first thing Paul says we did is we followed the ways of the world. Now, it's not only young teenagers that follow the ways of their peers. It's all of us. Like lemmings sometimes, we follow each other and make the same sorts of decisions and have the same sorts of values or lack of values because that's just the way the world is. Human wisdom, selfish motivation, trying to impress everyone around us with our greatness or sometimes even trying to hide our lack thereof so that people don't know the real us. Um, following the ways of the world includes a traditional, independent, rugged, duty-based, self-righteous worldview that rejects the gospel, and I think is probably prevalent in the state of Wyoming when I think about independent, rugged, I can do this myself, I don't need anybody to help me. I got it covered. Don't need the gospel. Don't need Jesus Christ. I got it. I can handle this. Or even a feelings-based one. You know, I'm all about love. I'm, I'm all about, you know, whatever. Whatever is good with you, that's good with me. As long as you're sincere in what you believe and whatever works for you. I mean, that also can have uh, be a rejection of the gospel. And we see this around us in our lives every day, don't we? Uh, a lot of us, uh, some of us in this room are headed to college and we're going to start classes next week. And man, if there is a, anywhere where uh, secular 
include everybody and everything and every thought and every wish, etc., you can run into it's on a college campus in our country today. We see this around us. We see it in our own lives. Again, us controlling our own little kingdom. I got this. Uh, Following the ways of the world. Paul says also that we are persuaded by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, I always find it interesting as I watch TV, I watch movies, that sort of thing, how they depict Satan in, in our world today. I mean, when is the last time you saw Satan depicted as kind of a red guy with horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork in his hand? Pretty often, right? Um, that's not what he looks like. Uh, not even close. I mean, Scripture refers to Satan as what? Somebody tell me. An angel of light. Uh, he was created probably more beautiful than any of the other angels. And it went straight to his head. Now, do you think that he, he took on this sort of alter ego look when he was cast out of heaven? Absolutely not. You know, uh, you think about what just popped into my head was the Bugs Bunny cartoon, actually. Um, and I, I think of the coyote trying to sneak into the, to the sheep herd to sneak away with the sheep, and there's the sheepdog, right? How could he see? Um, the coyote doesn't just march into the sheep herd looking like a coyote, right? He wants to deceive the dog, so he puts on sheepskin and tries to sneak in that way. That's exactly how Satan operates. He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a stealer. He wants to ruin your life and he wants to ruin mine. So if he can convince us that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, that that it's not going to hurt me or other people if I choose to do this or decide to do this because it's going to fulfill my selfish desires, it's really what I want, he's going to be as deceptive as he possibly can in the ways that he does that. He is going to, as Paul says, persuade you or me Paul also refers to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's going to be sneaky about it. Now, this isn't to say that people are possessed by the devil. Paul doesn't say that. He says, persuaded by, and we need to recognize that this spiritual battle is real. It is a real spiritual battle raging around us every day. And as we look around at the people who are outside of God's kingdom in our life, it's raging in their life too. And, and what I would like to say is that as we, look, as we look at people, again, Paul's writing to Christians. He's saying this is the way you were. As someone who was like that, I can look at people who are like that, who are just doing what's natural for them, and I can, instead of judging them and pointing my fingers at them and saying they're such a screw-up and they're, they're bound for hell, I can look at them and instead pray for them and recognize that I was there one day also. I have been chosen by God, and my prayer is that they would be as well that they too would experience the peace that I experience in my life. 
I mean, there's weeks where I don't experience peace, and if I experience that with Christ, I can't imagine what life is like without him. Persuaded by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We need to recognize that he is persuading with his lies and, and that we are disobedient because we want those lies to actually be true and good for us. Have you ever made a decision like that? I know this isn't right, but I want to do this anyway because I think this is what I want to do. And so if there's any way we could hear any sort of influence in that direction, we'll follow it. But only probably giving in to the lies of Satan and his persuasion. I mean, it says somewhere in the Bible that, that uh, right will become wrong and wrong will become right. Right? Do we see that in our culture today? Wow. Do we? It's because we want what we want and we're willing to do whatever we can to get what we want. And in the end, we're going to find out that what we want really isn't what we should have had. We were dead, Paul says. We didn't know any better. And if we did feel anything, it was because God was drawing us closer and closer to himself. The third thing Paul says is that we were held captive by our flesh. Held captive by our flesh. Now, flesh here is, in, is not referring to only physical, okay? Um, the word flesh here is, is referring to our entire human nature. I mean, we have an appetite for luxury. We have an appetite for entertainment. We have an appetite to be popular. We have an appetite to be accepted, to be a part of a group. We have an appetite for glory and honor. I mean, health, wealth, and happiness, right? We have an appetite for that. It's more than just physical, sexual, carnal kinds of things, this flesh that we're held captive by. I mean, we want them all, health, wealth, and happiness. And, and we live in a country that essentially says it's your right to have those things. You, I mean, it's your right to pursue those things. You should. So, of course, we would, and by no means am I saying that it's not good for us to pursue a healthy lifestyle and to pursue happiness. But we also need to recognize that that desire, we, that, that we can be held captive by that. You know, and, and before, again, Paul is talking to Christians, and he say, he's saying before you were adopted into the family of God, this is just what you did. You were just rolling down the road of life. And in some cases, I heard somebody uh, ask a question at a conference I was at one time. They said, how do we approach people in our life who are happily lost? We know that they're not saved. We know that they haven't surrendered their life to Jesus. But they don't see any problem in their life. There's nothing wrong. That is the natural state. That is being held captive by our flesh, persuaded by the ruler of the air, and following the ways of the world. Dr. Erwin Lutzer teaches preaching courses at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and every year he takes his students on a field trip to the local cemetery 
so they can preach. And when they get there, he says this. He says, I take them to a little cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois, and I have them all gather around a certain gravesite. I point out the name, and then I tell one of the students, preach the gospel to Mr. Smith here. They look at me like I'm nuts. So I preach to Mr. Smith with enthusiasm. Sir, Jesus died for your sins, and you must... Put your faith in him. Then I look at the students and I tell them, this is no different than preaching the gospel to unsaved people. The Bible says that they're dead in their sins. You can preach your heart out, but nothing will happen unless God does a miracle to give them the life to listen. As I think about that, and I think about you sitting here today, people listening online or maybe watching on Facebook this morning, you are experiencing today because God is doing a miracle in your life and he's giving you reason to listen. He's drawing you. He wants you to understand something today. He wants to communicate something to you. Now look at what Paul tackles next. I want you to look at the first word in verse 4. First word in verse 4, all of us say that word together. But. That has got to be, I think this is probably the number one biggest but in all of Scripture. Right there. And this is a but that we need to remember when we're interacting with people who have not come to faith yet. We've got to remember that but. Because that but was true of us too one day in the past. But, I mean, in the kingdom of God, there is one big, huge, enormous, gigantic but, and it's right there. And it could happen to anyone in our circle of family or friends of influence at any time. At any time. Think about that person. I've, I've, talked, to, man, I've talked to lots of people and, and sometimes it's, it's amazing what God did in that person's life. I mean, they were living dead in their sin and one day they were listening to a sermon or they had a friend sharing with them about what Christ has done for them and they surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. That could happen to anybody you and I know. No matter how terrible we think they are. No matter how good you think you are compared to them. You are on, as a Christ follower, who's been adopted in, who's been chosen, who's been given the gift of salvation, are on the right side of that but. And they are one decision away from being on the right side. And it could happen at any moment, at any time, in their life. Yes, we were following the ways of the world, Paul says, but God. Yes, we were persuaded by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, but God. Yes, we were held captive by our flesh, but God. Praise God there is a true king of the true kingdom, right? Amen? Amen. 
the king of the kingdom, but God, because of his great love for us, verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You think Jesus is important in all of this? He's center. He is central. He is our salvation. He is the one who came, the only one who could come and make us alive. To make the dead rise, it was Jesus coming as a man, God with us, Emmanuel. It was Jesus who lived a perfect life, sinless. Though confronted with all of the evils and all of the temptations that we are, even today. Jesus took on the sin of the world. He endured incredible pain and suffering. He was the perfect sacrificial lamb on the cross and then was resurrected after three days in the tomb. Death to life. And in this passage, Paul doesn't dwell so much on the cross as he does the life, the resurrection, the results of that resurrection, what we have received as a gift from God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That blows me away every time I think about it. Amazing. Loving, full of grace, illogical, crazy. But God, but God, because of his great love, Paul says. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this to lay, one's, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. He laid down his life. They didn't take it from him. Important to note. He laid it down. He submitted himself to that. That's exactly what God did for you and for me. I mean, we were spitting in his face. We were living disobedient, uh, carnal, living for ourselves lives, king of our own kingdoms, even cursing him. And what did he do? He loved us. He loved you. We reject him. And what does he do? He dies for us anyway. I mean, this is so hard for us. For, it's hard for me to understand because it, it just doesn't fit into my feeble, finite mind. Love. But God, because of his great love. But God is rich in, Paul says, mercy. We deserve death because of that sin. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. We deserve to stay dead. That's not how God operates. He is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Mercy is not receiving something that we do deserve. Police officer pulls you over for speeding because you were speeding. 
You deserve to be given a ticket. He chooses not to for whatever reason. He had mercy on you, right? He did not give you something that you deserved. We are dead in our sin. We deserve hell. All of us, every last one of us. But God, in his love, because of his great love, in rich mercy, Paul says, God took that punishment on himself. That's crazy. I mean, some of us would think, what parent wouldn't sacrifice something for their kid? Okay? What about a kid who has drained your bank accounts and stolen your car and, and put you into eternal debt? What, what sort of, would, would that cause you to maybe question your love and commitment and unconditional love for that child? Now, we would all love to say, oh no, that wouldn't cause me to question, but I bet there'd be a little pause. There wasn't with God. Because he's rich in mercy. But God is rich in mercy. Because of his great love, God is rich in mercy, but God, but God is full of grace. Paul uses that word as well to describe our Savior. Full of grace. It is by grace, Paul says, that we are saved. Not by ourselves. It's not our works. It's not our good things that we think we've done that should balance the scales between the bad things and the good things. When we sin, we miss the mark. And it's by God's grace. In verse 7 there, Paul describes God's mercy as incomparable riches. Far more important and valuable than money. God's grace. It's not something we can earn or that we deserve. Though that's a tough one, isn't it? Because we are taught in life to earn everything that we get. To earn everything that, that we... That, oh, you deserve that because of your hard work. Oh, that medal or that, uh, that trophy or that honor, that was well-deserving. And we think, yeah, it was. I did good. No, grace, God's grace is undeserving no matter how deserving we think we might be. And, and here's, here's what grace is. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. Another way to remember this, uh, it's an acrostic that I came across this week. I've heard it before. It's kind of cool. God's, grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. We are considered righteous because of what Jesus did. And it cost him his life. What an amazing gift. But God, full of grace, which is expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 right there, kindness. The Greek word for kindness means with moral goodness or integrity. With moral goodness or integrity. He is a good, good father. He is full of grace. He is, he is full of kindness. Moral goodness. Sums, it sums them all up, I think, this kindness. God doesn't have ulterior motives. He isn't after something that we don't know about or that we're going to find out about later. It is with moral goodness, integrity in Jesus Christ that God reaches to us and makes us alive. Again, remember, you and I were dead. We were dead. 
and he has made us alive. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation goes away with that life. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that when somebody tries to tell you how stupid you are or how nasty you are or how undeserving you are. Remember, God's word says, therefore, and he explains what that therefore is before uh, verse 1 and 2 in chapter 8 and verse, in chapter 7. Uh, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Lazarus, dead in the tomb, nothing he could do about it. What happened? Jesus came, called his name. What happened? Lazarus comes out alive. That's what happens when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. He makes us alive. We are raised to life in him. All who are in Christ have experienced this death-to-life transition. Satan would like to convince you otherwise. But in Christ, we are no longer dead and dead men and women walking. We are alive. Now today, right after church, we're going to dismiss out to out there. I already explained that. And um, I've had conversations with many of those who are going to be baptized. And, and we looked at the symbol of baptism. And it's, it's very similar to what Paul's talking about here, this symbol of baptism. Death to life, death to life. You, you think of... Uh, Standing in the water and going down under the water, representing our former dead self or being in the grave as Jesus Christ was crucified and was put in the grave. And then what happened? He didn't stay in there. We don't hold the person in there. We bring them back up. Quickly, I might add. representing new life being alive in christ now there's nothing about the water that specially purifies us or done does anything like that it doesn't save us it's a symbol of what has already happened to us having gone from death to life because jesus went to death and came back to life Jesus, of course, was baptized as well in the Jordan River. It's a great and wonderful outward symbol and proclamation of the inward reality that's already happened in the person's life. Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, who has great love, is rich in mercy, full of grace, which is expressed through his kindness. And then finally, a few words about the final 12 verses of the chapter. Very few words, I might add. God is a fair and loving God. And he says there in 11 through 22 that we are one in Christ. Okay, we are one in Christ. Paul says, therefore, okay, there's this good news here we just talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, because that is true, you need to remember as Gentiles and as Jews, Okay, that you, um, see verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to the Ephesians. He says, but, another but, 
Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You see, what at one time it was thought was only for one people group, the Israelites, God's chosen people, this mystery that has existed for all of these hundreds of years, Paul says, we now know this, we know it was hard for him to understand. It was hard for Peter to wrap his mind around it. It was, harder, it was hard for the early Israelites and Jews to wrap their minds around this. But God is saying, you know what? I didn't just die for the nation of Israel. I died for everyone. Uh, he goes on to explain that. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And at the end of verse um, 20 there, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and on the, what was supposed to be the nation of Israel's testimony to all the other nations that this is who God is and he wants to save you. He wants to be your God too. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief corner stone. The main strength of the foundation, it's in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. That was a big shift for them and it can be a big shift for us too because sometimes we think, well, that person doesn't really deserve it. I don't think they were good enough. I, you know what? It's not up to me. It's not up to me. It's not up to me to change their heart. It's not up to me to change their life. It's up to me to preach the truth and testify to the good news of the gospel and, and, and preach and teach to lead, a hor- to, to lead you horses to water. Maybe occasionally drop a little salt to make you thirsty as best I can and hoping that you will know that true life is in Jesus Christ, that he offers living water living water. Though we are centuries past this revelation of this mystery, we are still tempted to segregate or find reasons why salvation in Christ is only for certain people. (laughs) But we have to resist that temptation. God does not discriminate based on culture or skin color or even national politics. He says, we are no longer foreigners or strangers. Fellow citizens with, Christ, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, and it's in him that we're being built together to become a dwelling in, in which God lives by his spirit. One in Christ, and that's a big challenge. I want to to end with this verse right here. Worship team, you can come up. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's remember that this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Ah, Thank you for the richness of Ephesians. And I pray that that you would continue to encourage us and challenge us to, to, uh, to read and study and think and pray and allow your spirit to illuminate uh, what's in this book that, that you had Paul write for us. And Father, I pray that 
Lord, praise your name for, for saving me, for calling my name, and for calling, Lord, calling out the names of, I believe, all who are here today. I pray that they would, they would not just hear the truth, but they would know it, that they would believe it, and that that truth, as you have said, would set them free. And Father, I pray for those who are, are publicly taking a stand and saying, you know what, I believe Jesus is my Savior and I've put my faith and trust in Him and I want to follow Him for the rest of my life. Father, maybe for some today might be the first day of the rest of their life where they say, I believe. Thank you. Now, Lord, we want to lift your name high in this last song. In Jesus' name, amen.